You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. Fifteen weeks. <laughs> I looked at my calendar to double-check that. It's been 15 weeks since we are in the Gospel of John together here at CCC. Uh, over these last three or four months, a number of you have joined us. Welcome. It's always good to make new friends here at Christ Covenant Church, and I hope if the Lord has you here, that you will quickly feel very much part of our spiritual family that we know as CCC, Christ Covenant Church. For those of you who were here over the summer months, the study in the book of Nehemiah was encouraging, wasn't it? When we saw the hand of God upon his restored people there in Jerusalem, it was a good summer, wasn't it? And now today... We're back into our study in the Gospel of John. Uh, For those of you that were here before summer, you've been here in the spring and going back even further, what do you remember about our study in the Gospel of John? Wait, don't answer that yet. Let's work on this together. (laughs) Why did John write the Gospel of John? Why, Why did he write it? Do you remember? Yes. He says explicitly in chapter 20, In chapter 20, verse 31, John says why he wrote this account, this gospel account. He says in John 20, verse 31, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why he wrote it. He wanted people to see Jesus Christ. He was an eyewitness. He wanted people to see what he saw. He wanted people to hear what he heard. And that seeing Jesus, they might believe and have life. Just a real real quick synopsis of where we've been in the Gospel of John. In the first chapter, we see John's introduction to his Gospel. And that is one phenomenal chapter. If it's been a while since you read it, just make time this week and sit there and enjoy chapter 1. In chapter 1, John makes some astonishing claims about Jesus Christ. Titles. Claims. And then in chapters 2 through 10, there's this whole series of accounts of miracles Jesus would do. Only John often calls them not just miracles, but he calls them signs. Now when Jesus did certain things, he'd give a blind person sight or make a lame person walk. John says that was a sign. It pointed that Jesus is God's promised Messiah. There were signposts pointing to him. He's the one. He's the one we've been waiting for. Jesus is the Messiah. And an interesting component of the Gospel of John is every time you see one of these signs, it's like another watershed event. It's another watershed event. That as Jesus does this new sign, some people are drawn to him. Some people are drawn to him in faith. They become believers. They become followers of Jesus Christ. And yet that very same sign, that very same incident for other people, was repulsive. And instead of believing in Jesus, they actually would walk away from him, sometimes even in determined opposition against him. The Gospel of John is a story of contrasts. Is this Messiah, with all of his signs, had such polarizing responses in the lives of people who heard him and saw him. And all these different signs seem to culminate in a way, so far, In chapter 11, where Jesus does the astonishing sign, the astonishing miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. 
Now, as amazing as that is, Lazarus had been dead for four days. This wasn't like, well, he kind of swooned and people thought he was dead, but really just fainted. I mean, he was in the grave for four days. His sister said he stinks by now. And yet Jesus stood at that open tomb and called out, Lazarus! And the dead man became alive and walked out of that tomb. That happened in Bethany just two miles. Just two miles from Jerusalem where the people who were most strongly in opposition to Jesus lived and worked. That miracle was not off in some hinterland. It was next door to Jerusalem. Everybody saw it. Everybody heard about it. And so now, after our summer break with the resurrection of Lazarus in our minds, we come to chapter 12. In fact, what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to back up a bit. Because I think if, for sake of memory, if we go back into chapter 11 and read a few paragraphs and then move right into chapter 12, I think it's going to just give us enough context where you're going to say, oh. I mean, the lights come on a little bit brighter as we see the background of chapter 11. So with me, please. I'll read aloud. You follow along in your copy of the Bible. From John chapter 11, I'm going to start reading in verse 45. Pay attention to the background. What's going on as we launch into chapter 12 in a few minutes? The Word of God says in John chapter 11, verse 45. This is after the raising of, resurrection, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, after the resurrection of Lazarus. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he, what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council, the ruling council, and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. And if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place as rulers and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Doesn't sound like a very polite man, does he? <laughs> Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish? He did not say this because of his own accord, or on his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to a region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Let's keep reading. Chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore 
We'll come back to that. Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. And Lazarus was one of those reclining at at, with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, Many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. When we get to chapter 2, we see a banquet. What's the significance of this banquet? Where is this banquet? Let's ask the journalism questions. Where? Where is this banquet? Well, we're in the village of Bethany. That's just, if you think of Jerusalem, it's just down in the valley and up over the hill about two miles from Jerusalem. Matthew and Mark also record this account. They also record this incident. And in Matthew chapter 26, verse 6, it says that this banquet was at the house of a man known as Simon the leper. Now, interestingly, we don't know anything else about this guy. But I think it would be safe to assume that if they're having a banquet at his house, he's no longer a leper. So this was most likely a man that Jesus had healed from leprosy, and now he's, uh, maybe he was a man of means. It's not just poor people that get leprosy glad to host this banquet. When was this banquet? John 12, 1 says that this banquet was six days before the Passover. Uh, that would mean that this banquet that we're reading about here in John 12 would have been Saturday evening, probably after the Sabbath ended. When the sun went down, the Sabbath ended on Saturday, and uh, that's when this banquet would have been, Saturday evening. To give you perspective of where we are time-wise, we are now entering the week before the crucifixion. Jesus is going to die on the cross. This is Saturday evening. The following Friday, he'll be dying on the cross. The very next day, as we're going to see next week as we go on in our study of John 12, is the very next day was the triumphal entry, what we commonly know, know as Palm Sunday. That's, that's the next morning, Palm Sunday. That's where we are in the story. Uh, we are quickly approaching the shadow of the cross. It's interesting to me. One reason I wanted to back up and read chapter 11 with you is that it says in chapter 11, verse 57, that the chief priests and the Pharisees had issued a warrant for Jesus' arrest. Jesus knew that. He knew that. He knew that it was dangerous to go to Jerusalem. He knew that it was dangerous to go to this part of the Jewish empire, the Jewish, excuse me, the Jewish country. And yet he moved toward danger, not away from it. 
Now, I don't have time to embellish too long this morning, but I think it's fascinating as you read the gospel accounts that Jesus died right on God's schedule. It says in the Bible that the Jewish leaders did not want to arrest him during the Passover feast because they were afraid of a riot. And yet Jesus died at Passover. That was God's plan. Jesus was the Lamb of God. He was God's Passover Lamb. And Jesus died at Passover right on God's schedule. Jesus was no regrettable victim in all of this. He was very much in control of what was happening. And Jesus chose to move toward danger in full knowledge that he would die in a matter of days. He would die a violent death on a Roman cross. Jesus knew that. He knew that. And yet he moved toward Jerusalem at this time right on schedule. Why is this banquet happening? This is not just a social gathering of friends. It it is a gathering of friends, but it's not a mere social gathering. This is a celebration. It's a banquet held in honor of Jesus because of the resurrection of Lazarus. Only a matter of weeks have gone by. This is not a long time after Lazarus was raised from the dead. This, this is a matter of maybe a few weeks. Martha, Mary, some of their friends organized this thank you banquet for Jesus. Jesus is the honored guest. And here's Jesus, the honored guest. And right there, right there is Lazarus. Exhibit A. Exhibit A of the astonishing power and authority of Jesus that he can raise dead people to life. He was eating dinner with a man who had been dead. Who all was there? Who all was there at this banquet? Well, we don't know everybody, but we do know Jesus is there, right? And his 12 apostles were there, right? I'm going to assume that Simon the leper was there. It was at his house. Lazarus was there. Martha was there doing her act of service to the Lord, helping organize and serve the meal. By the way, I just this is a side note. She's not complaining this time. <laughs> I, think, I think the Lord helped her understand. She's serving gladly, not just a few people, but a rather large banquet, actually. And Mary is there. And we're going to focus on her in just a few minutes. What's happening If we were one of the spectators, and I think we're going to see that there were spectators maybe lining the perimeter of the room. Um, If we were there in the crowd, what would we see? What would we see? What would we hear? What would we smell? What we would see is um, tables. And this might not go well in our culture, but in that culture, only the men would have been seated at the table at the banquet. And so there would have been at least, let me just say it this way, at least 15 men reclining at table. There probably were more. I'm guessing there were other followers of Jesus who wanted to honor him there in Bethany. But at least 15 men. And just so you can visualize this, probably, I don't, there's no photographs, but probably what this would have looked like was with that many people, they probably set the tables up in a big U. It's called a triclinium. They would have set this, the tables up in a big U so that the food and drink could be served from the inside. And so these would be low tables. So you can picture a rather extensive table here in a U shape. 
And the men, at least 15, maybe others, would be reclining on their left side, their left elbows, on, with cushions, eating with their right hands, and their feet would be extended back at an angle away from the table. That's what we're seeing. What do we hear? Well, in a group this large, my guess is that there are probably several conversations going on simultaneously, at least for part of the meal. And if my hunch is right, that some of these people that had come from Jerusalem out of curiosity were allowed in, there might have been spectators around the perimeter, and you can hear a little bit of hubbub in the background as people are saying, what's she doing, and who is he? And There's Lazarus, that one over there to the left, you know? You know, you could hear this kind of hubbub in the background. You, you can hear the sound of the meal being served. And what do we smell? What do we smell? Can you smell it? Oh, there's the smell of food. This is a banquet. They probably had the best food they normally served back then. You could smell the food. But there's another aroma, another fragrance permeating the room, permeating the house. And it smells... Smells like, like expensive perfume. What what's this story in the Bible for? What is the focal point of this account? This account in this part of John twelve is a story of contrasts. It's another one of those stories of contrasts that we read about in the Gospel of John, and this one contrasts Mary a follower of Jesus, and her extravagant, lavish worshiping of Jesus contrasted with Judas, a fake, who seemed to put little value on Jesus at all. Mary is worshiping Jesus extravagantly, lavish. Mary's worship of Jesus cost her and I want us to appreciate just how much this cost Mary. This extravagant worship of Jesus cost Mary in at least two ways. It cost her financially. John makes a point, as do Matthew and Mark, that this ointment was pure nard. And you say, I, I don't see that at Walmart. I don't know what that is. Um, neither did I until I studied this. <laughs> nard is a very precious ointment or perfume, if you will, that comes from a plant that grows in the foothills of the Himalayas in northern India. So think about that. I mean, this is first century, right? So somebody had to gather these spikes from the ends of the nard plant in the foothills of the Himalayas way over there in northern India, make ointment out of it, and somehow ship it, camelback maybe, the whole way to the Mideast, to Jerusalem area. It would have been phenomenally expensive. In fact, Judas, if his estimation is right, Judas complains in his story that that jar of perfume could have been sold for 300 denarii. Well, a denarius was what a man would get paid as a day laborer. So if you were to go work for someone for the day, help them do whatever, load a truck or pick vegetables or whatever. In our culture, um, you'd get paid a denarius. And this was worth 300 of those. So I don't know that there's an equivalent in our American 21st century culture, but let me just say this. That jar of perfume 
would have been worth in our culture at least $24,000, $25,000. You think about that. Where in the world did Mary get a jar of perfume like that? It could be that this was a wealthy family. The Bible doesn't say, but it's quite possible. They often hosted Jesus and 12 men, so maybe they had a more significant home than most of the other people in the village. They could have been a well-to-do family. This could have been an heirloom that Grandma handed down. Who knows? But somehow, Mary had this alabaster jar full of pure nard. In our measurement system, they call it a pound, but in our measurement system, it would be like 11 or 12 ounces. Now, it tells us in the story, in the three gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and John, that she broke it. She probably broke the neck of it, like, like we would take the lid off. She broke the neck of it. And with perfume that expensive, it would make sense if she would have maybe just put her finger on the end and tipped it over and just daubed Jesus' feet a little bit, you know? That's not what it says. It says she poured it all out. She poured it. What would motivate her? What would motivate this lady to take such a precious, precious item worth thousands of dollars and pour it on Jesus' feet? She obviously thought he's worth it. Jesus is worth it. He's worth my. He's worth my most extravagant gift. And, and I think about that and I think, do I treasure Jesus more than my stuff? More than my money, my things? If, if people watched me, if they watched me closely, if they watched you closely, they, they look at how you spend your money. Would, would they come to the conclusion, having watched how you and I spend our money, would with people who know us best, our kids, our grandkids, our close friends, would they watch how we spend our money and say, she sure must love Jesus. He sure must love Jesus. Look at that. He's lavish. She's lavish with her finances when it comes to Jesus. Or is it more a matter of coming to the end of the week or end of the month, whatever your pay period is, and saying, is there anything left over? I'm glad to put, put it in the offering if there's anything left over. And we end up giving Jesus our, our leftovers. Our, our leftovers. Well, what's that saying? What's that saying about our value system? I'm not the Holy Spirit. But can I just say, is it time to evaluate my is it, is it time to evaluate? Mary's worship of Jesus cost her. It was an extravagant gift financially. But one thing we might miss in our culture, reading back into their culture, is we might miss this. This cost Mary socially. This was a costly gift socially. She anointed Jesus' feet. His feet. And in that culture, it was, it was the lowest servant who was given the job of washing someone's feet. Feet were dirty. They, they were unbecoming. In, 
and you didn't wash someone else's feet unless you were the lowest servant. Pastor Mark's going to be preaching from John 13 here in a couple of weeks, and, and we're going to see that Jesus showed his servant likeness when he washed his disciples' feet. And here's Mary. Here's Mary. She's anointing her Savior's feet and doing it in front of other people. And then, did you see what she did? She wiped the excess with her hair. With her hair. My friends, there surely were towels in that house. I mean, this was a banquet. It was planned. Martha was a good planner, I assume. And, and the, the food was well planned. They had to fix a lot of food because there were a lot of people. There were towels in that house. Mary wasn't lacking a towel. But she chose, she chose to let her hair down, to, to let her tresses fall. And, and she wiped her Savior's feet with her hair. In that culture, women didn't do that. A woman, especially a married woman, but any really any woman wouldn't let her hair down in front of men. It was socially unacceptable. But Mary, but Mary is not concerned about what people think of her. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, he called a woman's hair her glory. Her glory. And when I read this, I'm moved. I am moved when I see this woman so caught up with Jesus, so caught up with his worth, with his worth, with his value, that she says, I am glad, I am glad to take my glory and use it like a rag for his feet because he is inestimably worthy of all that I am, all that I have. And I am glad to turn my glory into a rag because of the worthiness of Jesus. And I think, what is it that I glory in? What is it that I glory in? It's, it's not my hair, obviously. <laughs> but, enough. But what is it that I glory in? What is it that I'm proud of that I think that marks me? That's me. That's what I'm known for. That's what I'm known for. That's my glory. That's my claim to fame. That's what people know me for. What's your glory? What's my glory? When I see Jesus, when I say, I'm, I'm glad to turn my glory into a rag. I'm glad to treat my glory, my reputation, my abilities. I'm glad to treat my glory is a rag if it would honor my Savior. I'm glad to wipe his feet with my glory because of his glorious worth. That Jesus is that valuable. And you see Mary devoting herself to this extravagant worship. Extravagant worship. You know, just by way of a side, I was thinking about this account this week. I've been chewing on it actually for more than a week now. And I was thinking, you know, a neat part of this that John doesn't mention is that Mary would have smelled like Jesus for days. <laughs> you know, they don't wash their hair every day like we do. I mean, that ointment was on Jesus. Matthew and Mark tell us that she started at his head and, and poured it on his body, Jesus said. And then on her feet, she just emptied the jar. 
and, and Jesus would have smelled. He would have smelled like that even to the day he died. And there's Mary with all that nard in her hair. When she walked past people, I wonder if some people say, where have I smelled that before? Where, where have I smelled that before? Oh, she smells like Jesus. <laughs> and I think what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians, he says, we, we believers are the, we're the aroma of Christ everywhere we go. And when some people smell Christ on us, when, the, when they smell Jesus on us, they say, that smells like life to me. And yet, just like Jesus himself was a watershed, so are we followers of Jesus. And there are other people that smell Jesus on us, and they say, that smells like death to me. But Paul says, but, but everywhere we go, we have the same aroma. Everywhere we go, we have the same aroma. We, have, we are the aroma of Christ. In contrast, my friends, in contrast to Mary, the follower of Jesus, we see Judas Iscariot, the fake what was Judas's take on Mary's extravagant devotion to Jesus? What was his take on that? What a waste. I mean, think about that. Here's Judas reclining at the table, and he looks at what Mary has just done, where she poured out that phenomenally expensive jar of ointment on Jesus' feet. And he looks at that, and he says, he verbalized it. He wasn't just thinking it. He verbalized it. He basically said, what a waste. He says, we, 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 she should have given that to us. We could have sold it. And we could have taken that money, thousands of dollars, and put it in the kitty. We could have put it in the, the bag that we keep our money in, that we use for ministry. But John, writing his gospel years later, looks back. And he's more insightful now to the true person of Judas. And he says, Judas was a fake. He wasn't concerned about the poor. He was concerned about himself. Judas wanted that perfume sold. He wanted that money in the money bag. You know why I wanted that money in the money bag? So he could pilfer it. So he could pilfer it. He was a thief. Judas loved money more than he loved Jesus. Now, we're familiar with this story, most of us anyway. And we know that just days later, not a week later, just days later, Judas would sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Now, I don't know that there's an exact equivalent, but probably 30 pieces of silver in our culture would be somewhere in the range of $1,000. A fraction fraction of Mary's gift of anointing Jesus' feet. Judas sold Jesus for a thousand dollars. Somehow in his understanding of things and Judas's paradigm about life and reality and happiness, he thought money would bring him more delight, more joy than Jesus would. And I would rather have money than Jesus. And when he sold Jesus, he not only sold the Savior, but in a sense, he sold his own soul. 
Jesus defends Mary to Judas and the others. He defends her extravagant act of worship. You see that in verses 7 and 8. In Matthew's account, he adds a few more details. And in Matthew 26, Matthew wrote, Matthew, he would have already also have been there that evening. Matthew wrote, but Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for my burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed to the whole world, in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And here we are almost 2,000 years later on the other side of the world, and we know this story. Jesus was telling the truth, wasn't he? Always telling the truth. Why did Jesus defend Mary? I mean, you know, if you think about it, when Judas said this could have been sold and the money given to poor, that sounds kind of attractive, doesn't it? I mean, you know, we hear that and we think, you know, that that makes sense. I mean, if if this is a church business meeting, I'd, I'd vote for that, you know. Selling the ointment and giving it to the poor. Why did Jesus defend her extravagant act of devotion, his costly act of devotion? Why did he defend her? I missed one of these. John Piper, I was reading something he wrote where he gave three reasons, and I appreciated Dr. Piper because I don't think I would have caught the third. Let, let me give you the ones that Dr. Piper gives. One reason, the first reason why Jesus said, let her alone, is he says, you won't always have me with you. Leave her alone because you, plural, do not always have me with you. Mary felt the preciousness of Jesus presence. I'm going to flip just for a moment back to the first chapter of John. In John's prologue, he says this in verse 14. Listen to what John says about Jesus at the beginning of his gospel. John 1:14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And there's this woman at Jesus' feet And she saw the preciousness of Jesus' presence. And she understood this as God come in human flesh. That God the Son is here among us. He is living among us, tabernacling among us. And we have seen Him. We've we've seen His glory. we've, We've seen His grace. We've heard His truth. And Mary realized He isn't always going to be here. And I want to honor Jesus for his presence. She had been gripped by his grace. She had tasted of his truth. She'd seen his glory. And when she saw this God come in the flesh one, this Emmanuel, this Jesus, it's like she was so captivated with him. It's like, what can I reach for? What can I reach for that would express my, my, my incalculable estimation of his worth? There, that John Alabaster, it's been in the family. It's the most expensive possession I own. I will gladly break this and pour it on his feet. That she saw the worthiness of her Savior. And she was glad. 
This wasn't begrudging. She was glad to pour it on his feet. She saw his worth. How do, you, how do you measure the worth of Jesus? I mean, think about that as a worshiper. How, how, do, you, how do you measure the worth of Jesus? What is he worth to you? Can, you? can you imagine? Can you imagine looking at your life and you think of your stuff, you think of your money, you think of your time, you think of your reputation, and you say, well, I, I'll give him this much, but that's the limit, man. That's the limit. I mean, that's all he gets from me. I mean, would you dare say that out loud? Would you dare say, he can have this much of my money, he can have this much of my stuff, he can have this much of my reputation, he can have this much of my comfort, he can have this many members of my family, but he better not touch that. Can you imagine? What, what, what would saying that reveal about your heart? It would be saying, he's worth this much, but not that much. I'll give him this much, but he can't have that much. Where Mary is illustrating that she saw Jesus as worthy of all. He's worthy of all. And even this gift of perfume is just a token. It's just probably the most expensive thing she had. And she said, what else can I do? Jesus is worth everything to me. I will gladly sacrifice my stuff. I will gladly sacrifice my reputation, my glory for his. Second, Jesus says, leave her alone because the poor you always have with you. Now that might sound callous in our socially sensitive ears, but what is Jesus saying to Judas? He's saying, Judas, there's always going to be poor people. And what Mary's doing today for me doesn't stop you. If you want to help poor people, and you should, even as he did, if you're going to help poor people, what she's doing isn't going to stop you from helping poor people. Don't use her as an excuse. But behind all of this, we see from John's perspective years later, that wasn't really the issue, was it? Judas wasn't concerned about the poor. He was concerned about Judas. Jesus amazingly holds some of his criticism that he could have given Judas, but had he spoken more directly about this, could he have said something to Judas like, Judas, you love money more than you loved me. Judas, in five days you're going to be selling me for 30 pieces of silver. Is that what I'm worth to you, Judas? Your love of your money is blinding you to my value, Judas. Mary has done the better thing, Judas. Leave her alone. You have no idea, Judas. Your love of money is hard in your heart against me, and you have, you have no idea what this woman's doing in your, your blindness. Leave her alone, Judas. And then the third reason Jesus said leave her alone is she's doing this for my burial. You know, if you're familiar with the gospel accounts of Jesus' death and burial, when he died on the cross, they put his body in the grave, on Friday, they couldn't come on Saturday because that was the Sabbath. They were going to come on Sunday to anoint his body. But by then, he was already alive again. <laughs> so what Mary did here, that, that was his anointing for burial. There wasn't any other. And Jesus is saying, she understands. And, and you know, I'm reading between the lines here, but I have to think that 
Mary got something about Jesus that even his own apostles missed. I mean, Jesus had been saying that he was going to die. He said explicitly he's going up to Jerusalem to die. He said that. And somehow his guys, his apostles, just weren't getting it. But this woman, this woman got it. And she believed him. She understood Jesus is going to die. My Savior's going to die. And I want to anoint him for his burial. You know, why don't we just stop for a minute and ask another important question. And that is, why this stark contrast between Mary and Judas? How, how did Mary get to have such a, an extravagant love and devotion to Jesus and yet Judas didn't think he was worth much at all. He considered giving Jesus a gift a waste. You know, you know what fascinates me? Both Mary and Judas had spent a lot of time with Jesus. They both had. In fact, Judas would have spent more time with Jesus than Mary had. I mean, he followed Jesus around for three years. Hanging around Jesus doesn't necessarily make you a follower. And I think those who are growing up in the church, we need to lovingly remind them of this. It's not an automatic thing. It's not an automatic thing. Just hang around Jesus. What is it about Mary? What, what is it about her? Well, if you're familiar with the Bible, if you're not, that's okay. But if you're familiar with the Bible, answer this question for me. We, we see Mary several times in the Bible. Every time we see Mary in the Bible, Mary of Bethany, where is she? Every time. At his feet. That's fascinating. John makes a point of telling us that. That every time Mary of Bethany is pictured in the Bible, she's at the feet of Jesus. That's a posture of learning, a posture of submission, a posture of worship. That she is at the feet of Jesus. Mary knew something about Jesus because she was at his feet. She listened. And the Spirit of God gave the eyes of her heart the ability to see not only the worthiness of her Savior, but when she saw the worthiness of her Savior, she saw her own unworthiness. She saw her own unworthiness. But she was conscious in light of his glory that her glory was to be sacrificed. She saw that Jesus was full of grace and truth. I would say it this way. Her lavish devotion comes from a lavish gratitude for Jesus' lavish grace. Her lavish devotion came from lavish gratitude in response to Jesus' lavish grace. You contrast that with Judas. He was a thief. Now, this might not be true every time, but Sometimes when people get caught from embezzlement, they get caught from taking money from the company or the church or social agency. How do people often defend themselves from embezzlement? My boss didn't pay me enough. He didn't treat me right. I, I deserve more than I've gotten. And so I'm just going to take, I'm going to take what I deserve. I'm going to take what I deserve because they haven't treated me well. They've not treated me the way I should be treated. They didn't pay me like I should be paid. So I'm just going to take some. I'm going to take some money out of petty cash. I'm going to take some money out of my expense account. I'm just going to take it because I deserve it. I deserve it. They just haven't given it to me. 
Now, I wonder if that was in Judas's psyche, if that was part of Judas's whole way of looking at himself, where he looked at himself as deserving. I deserve. I have a right to that money, and I'm going to take it. And Jesus isn't coming through for me the way I want him to, so I'm going to just sell him to the Sanhedrin. He felt maybe like Jesus owed him. You know, there was another incident of Jesus' feet in the Bible. It's not the same instance at all. Don't confuse the account from Luke 7 with what we see here. But there was another incident when a woman, a sinful woman, it says in Luke 7, washed Jesus' feet with her tears, and she got criticized too. And you remember what Jesus said in that incident? He said to the guy who was complaining, he said, he who is forgiven little loves little. Now think about that for a minute. He was forgiven little, loves little. Is Jesus saying, well, some people just, they're not very sinful, so they don't have much to forgive. Is that his point? <laughs> not at all. Jesus is saying, if you're not aware of how much you deserve to be forgiven, you're not going to love Jesus very much. Your, your love for Jesus is going to be comparable to how much you see yourself as needing forgiveness. And if indeed Judas didn't see himself as someone needing forgiveness, he didn't really need Jesus, then he didn't love him much. He was forgiven little, loves little. And Judas loved very little. There's another part of the story we won't have time to delve into today, but if you look at verses 9 through 11, there are certain, I'll call them Jesus fans, Mary was a follower, Judas was a fake. There were some fans here. Are they going to end up as followers, as foe? We'll find out more next week. But they're also foes. And if you look at 9 through 11, it says the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Now isn't that grievous? I mean, what did Lazarus do to deserve to die? But the Sadducees who were in charge of the Sanhedrin, they didn't believe in the resurrection. Judas was an embarrassment. He was an embarrassment. Not only that, but Jesus was getting people to believe in him, which they hated. And so rather than repenting of their bad theology and rather than repenting of their unbelief and putting their faith in Jesus Christ, they said, we're just going to kill the evidence. We're going to kill Lazarus. Now, if you remember what we read in John chapter 11, Caiaphas, the high priest, said, better for one man to die. And it's already up to two. And my friends, if you study church history, it doesn't end there. And thousands upon thousands, maybe millions of Christians have died over the intervening centuries for the cause of Christ and his gospel. It's not going to end with two. Oh, but it says many people believed in Jesus because of Lazarus. And you read that last phrase in this passage and you think, oh, wouldn't that be a wonderful thing if we could put our names in there? Many people put their faith in Jesus because of, in your name or my name. Wouldn't that be wonderful? My friends, how could Jesus become precious to you? Is he precious to you? Is he precious to you? Do you see Jesus? Do you... Do you see Jesus as inestimably valuable? That he is worth everything to you? Now, in the honesty of your heart, you're saying, you know what, I don't think so. Maybe you're saying yes, 
But maybe some of you are saying, you know, he's really not. Then we end up treating Jesus as kind of like a nice commodity that we can tap into when we want relief from our pain or we want something good to happen to us. You know, Jesus is kind of there. I can tap into him momentarily to make my life a little nicer. Uh, Jesus is not a temporary commodity. He's not something to be used like a consumer item. He's the king. He's the king. Do you see him as valuable? You say, I don't want to stay here. I, I feel the coolness of my heart. What can be done for my heart? My heart seems cold. It seems cool. I, I don't have this passion that I see in Mary. I don't see myself with extravagant devotion. Let me encourage you to just simply think about this woman that John presents before us here and say to yourself, do I need to spend more time at the feet of Jesus? Do I need to spend more time at the feet of Jesus? That I, I sit at Jesus' feet and I, I admire him. I see his glory. I see him as full of grace and truth. And as you are there at the feet of the glorious one, and in the light of his glory, you begin to see yourself with a different estimation. No longer are you sitting there thinking of yourself as someone deserving. I, I deserve, I want, I need. But in the light of his glory, you begin to see your own glory as something that should be like a rag to wipe his feet. That he is worthy. And I am a sinner in need of his grace. And that as you stay at his feet and you see him in all of his glory, you become increasingly a passionate worshiper. I'm thinking about that hymn that Isaac Watts wrote several hundred years ago when he said, were the whole realm of nature mine, if everything in the world was mine, that were present far Far too small. Love, his love. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all, my all. Would you come to him today? I'm going to pray for.